You may be seated. And I invite you to take out your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Psalm 100. Psalm 100. I wanted us to spend this morning continuing with the the echo of thanksgiving as we stare at this psalm. It's a short psalm. Many of you have it memorized. But I want us to be reminded of how powerful songs and the psalms have, the, the, the power that they have. Songs have power to capture our hearts, to transform our character, to strengthen our affections. Even this morning, as we were uh, reading God's word, um, we were remembering songs that come straight from scripture. They stick with us. Singing sticks with us. And so it is good for us as we are attempting to dwell in the spirit of thanksgiving this morning. It is good for us to think on and meditate on a song, a psalm that deals with thanksgiving. In fact, this psalm, Psalm 100, is the only psalm of all 150 psalms. It's the only psalm that starts with the heading, a psalm of thanksgiving. It's very interesting because you would think the book of Psalms is just a book of praise and thanksgiving, but this is the only psalm. No other psalm starts with that subtitle, a psalm of thanksgiving or for thanksgiving. There are many people who would say that this psalm is the height of the psalms put together. Um, There's a German commentator, his name is Eric Zenger, and he says it this way, it's the most, Psalm 100 is the most spectacular statement of theology in the entire Old Testament. That is high praise for this psalm. Charles Spurgeon says it this way, nothing can be more sublime this side of heaven than the singing of this noble psalm by a vast congregation. It is all ablaze. This psalm is all ablaze with adoration. And I pray, I I believe Spurgeon is right. This psalm is ablaze with adoration and glory. And my prayer is that its sparks would fall on us this morning and set our hearts ablaze for who God is and for what he has done. Let's read it together. Psalm 100, verse 1. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us and we, not ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name because the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting and his faithfulness to all generations. God, I pray that you would bless our time this morning, that our hearts would be set ablaze by this psalm, by your word. I pray that as we stare at the commands you've given to us for worship and the reasons that you've given to us for worship, that our hearts would be set ablaze for Jesus. God, may we have our affections raised. May we love him. May we see him. And may our devotion for him grow as we spend time in this amazing psalm this morning. We pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. The psalms, as you know, were primarily written to inform the public worship of Israel. They are the the hymnal of Israel, so to speak. And so they're helpful to inform our public worship as well. Uh, This psalm is the concluding psalm, as we studied this morning in our family Bible hour. This is the concluding psalm 
of a series of what we call theocratic psalms. So Psalm 93 through Psalm 100 is a series of theocratic psalms. God is king and he reigns over us, over his people and over the entire earth. This is the last of that series of psalms. And these psalms were so integral to the Jewish people as a theocratic series of psalms that Jewish people, even to this day, they will sing Psalm 95 through 100 each day leading up to Sabbath. So um, starting on Sunday, they will sing 95, 96, 97, 98, 99, 100 leading up to the Sabbath because God is king. He has reigns over them. He reigns supreme in majesty and glory, and they are worshiping him and resting in his work on the Sabbath. So if you're a very orthodox Jewish person, you're going to know that these are theocratic psalms that God is king and reigns over you. We have all the more reason to know that he reigns through Jesus Christ as Lord, as Savior, as Messiah. And this being the only psalm with the heading, a psalm for thanksgiving, I believe gives us such a reason to pause and to say thank you, God, for giving us a psalm devoted to thanksgiving. And I hope that our time this morning in God's word will encourage us to give thanks to him. Just by way of outline, what we're going to do is we're going to see, number one, the call to worship. There's a call to worship given to us in this psalm, and there are reasons to worship. So number one, call to worship. Number two, reasons to worship. Normally, we would go through verse by verse. Um, this, this has its four stanzas. Just briefly look at it with me. Four stanzas, and they follow call to worship, reasons to worship, call to worship, reasons to worship. So call to worship. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. Reason to worship. Know that the Lord himself is God. It's he who made us and not we ourselves. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Back to call. So enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. Back to reasons. Because the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting and his faithfulness to all generations. So you see that, right? Four stanzas. Call to worship. This is what we should do. This is why we should do it. Reasons for worship. What we should do, why we should do it. What we should do, why we should do it. So what we're going to do this morning is we're just going to put those together. So verses 1, 2, 3, or verses 1, 2, and 4 are the call to worship. And verse 3 and 5 are the reasons for worship. So we're going to put those together and we're going to see them as one unit. So let's start with the call to worship. The psalmist gives us a call. He gives us commands. He says, we must shout, we must serve, we must come, we must enter, we must give thanks, we must bless his name. These are things that we must do. They're commands given to us by God through the psalmist, but they're given to us in very specific ways. There are three specific ways in which the psalmist commands us to come before the Lord in this call to worship. The first way that you'll recognize right off the bat is this call is a noisy call. This is a noisy call to worship. Verse 1, shout joyfully. Come before him with joyful singing. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Bless his name, give thanks to him. But we are supposed to shout. This isn't a prescription for tone deaf people. This isn't, if you're tone deaf, don't sing, just shout instead. No, that's not what he's saying. This is a A fanfare that would follow a victorious king coming home, saving his people from defeat, saving his people from utter destruction, shouting, the king has returned, he reigns, he's victorious. Even as we saw this morning in Family Bible Hour, from Psalm 93 to Psalm 99, God reigns on his throne, he is king, he 
he meets out uh, vengeance and punishment and justice on the wicked, and he protects the righteous. So we rejoice, we shout. Now, this isn't the only psalm that addresses corporate worship, as you know. So there are other psalms that will tell us to do other things other than just shout. But this is the psalm that we're looking at this morning. And it does help us to understand there's an element of shouting. There's an appropriateness to loudness in a worship service. It's appropriate to be loud when we gather. Richard Wells, in a a very helpful book, on the Psalms says this, the strong emotions of the Psalms make many modern people uncomfortable, which is very ironic since our culture seems to feed on feelings. Um, Many people will just gloss over shouting joyfully loud noises before the Lord because they don't really like emotions. Maybe we're afraid of looking a certain way or feeling a certain way or acting a certain way or sounding a certain way. And so We just kind of come before the Lord, instead of shouting joyfully, we come nonchalantly. (laughs) Like, oh, well, you know, God deserves my praise, but I'm going to praise him like this, and just nonchalant, and he's cool, and that's great. We we do this often in my family, Um, and I'm sure that you with little kids, and and, uh, you who had once had little kids know this, We tell our kids all the time, there's an inside voice and an outside voice. (laughs) There's an inside voice. And for some reason, the inside voice is always being used outside, and I can never hear my kids. What are you saying? And I have to go to them. And the outside voice is always being used inside. Like, stop shouting, stop shouting. Like, I'm not that old, but I'm already like, oh, my ears, so much noise. Can everybody be quiet? Like, just stop. But here in the house of God, shout. There's no inside voice, outside voice in the house of God. You shout joyfully. You make a joyful noise. You, you come before him with enthusiasm that cannot be contained, as we read earlier, breaking forth like a volcano that can't be contained. Marvin Tate, a commentator on this passage, says it this way. The enthusiasm of Israelite worship is illustrated throughout the Psalms, uh, specifically throughout Psalm 93 to 100. Shouts are raised, praises chanted and sung while musical instruments are played and horns are blown. The noise of the temple worship was legendary. The noise of the temple worship was legendary. And the reality is this passage is not about my personal preference or your personal preference. This is about God's personal pleasure. God demands that we come before him in a certain way, shouting joyfully before him. And as we do that, we are edified as well. So the call to worship demands, number one, that it be noisy. This is a noisy call. Come before him with loud singing. Number two, it's joyfully glad noise. So it's noisy, but it's joyfully glad noise. Volume alone is not sufficient. It must be distinctively joyful or glad volume. Uh, Notice in verse 2, serve the Lord with gladness. So we are to, verse 1, shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth and serve the Lord. Or that word serve in the Hebrew could also be translated as worship the Lord with gladness. So serve with gladness, worship with gladness and joy. Come before him with joyful singing. So our noise can't just be noise. It has to be happy noise. It has to be joyful noise. Jim Boy says the people of God are to praise God loudly because they are happy with him and in him. 
We're to praise him loudly with happiness because we're happy in him. Charles Spurgeon says, our happy God should be worshipped by a happy people. God is the happiest being in the universe, and he ought to be worshipped by happy people. So in the midst of our noise, in the midst of our volume, there should be discernible joy. This makes sense. Sometimes I think that, so we have a dilemma when we sing in corporate, sing, in corporate worship. We have a dilemma. We can either sing all new songs all the time, and then nobody ever knows what we're singing. You guys ever been to services like that, where it's like, I don't know that song, I don't know that song, I don't know that. This has been a waste of my time. So we can either do that, which you learn new songs and that's good, or we can sing pretty much the same songs we normally do and just bring in a couple. That's what we tend to do. Sing the songs we normally sing. We have a canon of songs that we sing. And we'll introduce new songs slowly but surely, and we'll try to ingrain them. So we're singing songs. One of the, the problems, there's pros and cons to everything, one of the cons to doing it that way is we become overly familiar with songs. Now, I want you to be familiar with songs because we're singing songs that are scripture-saturated, so hopefully the Word of God is dwelling in your mind and in your heart, and you're singing, and you just find yourself through the week singing a song. Where did that song come from? It came from us singing it so many times uh, in, during the worship service on Sunday morning. But... Because of that, we have a tendency to just, we know the song, we gloss over the words. We don't sing, my sin, oh, the bliss, bliss, joy, uncontainable excitement. Wait, what, what are we so uncontainably excited about? My bliss, or my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. Is this a glorious thought? My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. So praise the Lord. Sometimes we can just kind of stand there. My sin, oh, the bliss. We've sung it so many times. But we of all people, when we sing that rightfully, we have reason to be blown away with praise. We have reason to shout with joy, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. That, if you look at those lines... They don't make sense. They don't match up. There's three lines and then a fourth that just has nothing to do with those three. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Let's talk about what happens with our sin or what happens at the cross. No, no, forget that. We're done. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. That's the only right response. And so it is appropriate for us to worship with joy and loud singing before our God. Now, there is an appropriate time for silence. There's an appropriate time for sobriety. I know that. The psalms, uh, the psalms are full of that. Again, surprisingly so, this is the only psalm that says a psalm of thanksgiving because most of the psalms, the majority of the psalms, are lament psalms. They are. So there is a time to grieve. There's a time to worship the Lord through silence. There's a time to worship the Lord through mourning. There's a time to worship the Lord through sorrow. Not just always glad. And I pray that at our worship services, I pray that we would always have that combination of joyful exuberance before the Lord and silent grief and mourning and sorrow, just back and forth constantly. But it should always end in awe and wonder at the grace of our God. This psalm is very clearly just commanding us on the joyful end, on the happy spectrum. And once again, this psalm is not a matter of personal preference. You know, there's people that are just given to being happy all the time. 
And sometimes they just make you mad because <laughs> you're like, why are you always so happy? Like, stop it. There are some people that are so happy all the time, and, and they can read this and go, yeah, that's what I do. That's the way I live my life 100% of the time. And you go, well, this song doesn't, it doesn't apply to me because I'm not like that. I'm not just happy all the time. I'm not just, I wake up with a smile on my face. I don't remember the last time I woke up with a smile on my face. I woke up trying to hit the alarm clock so hard that it would smash and I'd never hear it ever again. Um, I, do, I don't like waking up in the morning. But this psalm isn't about our personal preference. This psalm is about what God has commanded of us. It's not about our personality. If you're given to quiet, uh, a quietness, a, a more reservedness, I would just encourage you, number one, I know that you can be passionate even while being reserved. I know that that's possible. But I would just encourage you, is there a way that you can excel still more in the way that you come before the Lord with noisy gladness and joyful shouting? So we come before the Lord with this call to worship. It's a call of noise. It's a call of joyful noise, shouting joyfully. And number three, this call involves singing, thanksgiving, and praise. So it's a call to sing, to give thanks, and to praise. It's a call to sing. It's a call to sing where God rules, where God is singing abounds. There is singing And once again, as we talked about on Wednesday night, we see clearly this is singing and thanking God for who he is and for what he's done. That's the pattern. That's the formula in the scriptures. We praise God for who he is, for his character, and for what he has done. And that's what we're going to see in point number two with the reasons. We say a a lot here that if you are a Christian and you hate reading, um, things will be challenging, right? Right? We say that a lot. God chose to reveal himself to us in a book. So if you hate reading, let's try hard to get over it. First of all, I would say you haven't read a good book. I hated reading until I was in 10th grade, and then I read a good book, and now I love reading. So if you hate reading, you've got to press through, find a good book. Once you find a good book, you'll, you'll be changed by it, and you'll love reading. But God chose to reveal himself in a book. Now, praise the Lord, there are ways that we can learn and study the word of God without reading. You can hear it. There are other ways that God has given to us to do that, but he revealed himself primarily in a book. I would also say that if you are a Christian and you don't like singing, it's going to be challenging because the entirety of the Bible tells us that Christians sing. Christians are people who break forth in song. Why is that? Now, this would, this would take a whole sermon. I'm just going to read you four quotes to answer that question. They're hopefully going to get progressively more powerful. They're going, to, they're going to go to different issues. We're going to start early with a guy named Athanasius. We're going to move all the way to a modern-day pastor. But these four quotes hopefully will help kind of round out why do Christians sing? Why are Christians known as people who sing? Athanasius says this, To sing the Psalms demands such concentration of a man's whole being on them that in doing it, his usual disharmony of mind and corresponding bodily confusion is resolved just as the notes of several flutes are brought by harmony to one effect. So he says, one of the reasons why God prescribes singing is because during singing, 
our usual disharmony of mind, what we're thinking, what we're going through, and body, bodily confusion, the way we feel, the, the way that we have lived our lives the last week, those are, are divorced, they're struggling, they're, they're disharmonized. But in singing and concentrating on singing, they can be resolved. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. I've experienced that, where, where you, you are thinking about the, the past week and what's been going on and the chaos of your life, and, and you're wearied, your body, all you want to do is sleep. That's all you want to do is just take a nap. And somehow it's like a five-hour energy drink that you just all of a sudden, your mind is focused and your body is invigorated and it doesn't matter how you feel, it matters what you know. And you start singing truth and that invigorates and, and the disharmony that you have through that last week is brought together in harmony to worship the Lord. That happens because of singing. Martin Luther says it this way, music is to be praised as second only to the word of God because by her all the emotions are swayed. This is why there are so many songs and psalms. This precious gift has been bestowed on men alone to remind them that they are are created to praise and to magnify the Lord. So singing is commanded by God because it helps sway the emotions. And you, you infuse truth into the emotions as you sing and you sway Um, your your emotions to a godly perspective. Jonathan Edwards says it this way, the duty of singing praises to God seems to be given wholly to excite and express religious affection. So the whole reason why we sing, according to Jonathan Edwards, is to excite and express religious affections. There is no other reason why we should express ourselves to God in verse rather than in prose and with music, except that these things have a tendency to move our affections. Have you ever been singing and you're singing the truth of God's word and the music and the truth? They just become one in such a way that as you open your mouth to sing the next word, nothing comes out. And instead of instead of words or instead of a melody coming out of your mouth, just tears start flowing. And you're so choked up over the truth and the beauty and the splendor and the majesty of God because it's, it's set to music in such a way to sway your emotions and to bring your affections higher before the Lord. We're not trying to manipulate. Singing isn't manipulative. That's why it needs to be infused with truth. But when the truth of God's word is beautifully set to music, it can absolutely grow your love for Jesus. Amen? Finally, John Piper says, says it this way. This is one of my favorite quotes of all time. I love this quote so much. John Piper says this. The reason that we sing is because there are depths and heights and intensities and kinds of emotions that will not be satisfactorily expressed by mere prosaic forms or even poetic readings. There are realities that demand to break out of prose into poetry and some demand that poetry be stretched into song. And so I pray that in our worship services, the poetry of God's word is stretched into song in such a way that we sing gospel-centered, theologically informed poetry that's been stretched into song. The psalmist gives us a call to worship. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Serve or worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. In verse 4, enter his gates 
with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. That's the, that's the how. The call to worship is the how. This is how you are to worship God. But now we move to the why. Why do we worship him that way? Why do we worship him at all? This is point number two. This almost gives us reasons for worship. We have the call to worship, the call to worship. It's a noisy call. It's a joyful call. It's a call of thanksgiving and praise. But here are the reasons why. The psalmist is not just commanding us to do these things without informing us of the motivations behind them. It's possible to fulfill those commands, and since you have no motivation behind it, as you are unknowingly, with no reasons or motivation behind what you're doing, you're just going through motions, your worship, without the foundation of why you're worshiping, is meaningless at best and idolatrous at worst. You could be worshiping some made-up God in your own mind if it's not informed by God's word. Sometimes, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, you just start singing because everybody around you is singing, and you just jump in and you're raising your voice because that's what everybody's doing, and before you know it, it's kind of like when you drive. Have you ever had that scary experience when you drive, and you, you get in the car, you turn the car on, and before you know it, you're at your destination, and you think, what just happened? Like, where was I? And you realize, how did, how did I not hit everyone on the road? Um, sometimes that happens when we're singing, right? You just go in and, oh, here we go, first song, and, and then, oh, we're done? Like, the service is over? Like, what, what did we even sing? I don't even know. Like, crowds have a tendency to do that, where you just start going along with whatever the flow is of the crowd. Carl Truman, uh, a very, very helpful scholar, says it this way. I love this. Crowds can make otherwise perfectly sane people do otherwise inexplicably wicked and evil things. Um, strange things come to mind. He says this, you run down the road with traffic cones on your heads because other people do it. Or sometimes you applaud at the end of Justin Bieber concerts because other people are doing it. So why would anybody do those things other than the fact that there's a crowd there? Um, crowds can make us do really, really stupid things. Psalmist says, don't do anything because the crowd around you is doing it. Don't do anything because the people around you are doing it. I'm going to give you reasons for why you should be singing. I'm going to give you reasons for why you should be shouting joyfully. I'm going to give you reasons. He's providing the rationale. The why of worship is informing the how we worship. And the why, the foundation, is much more important than the how. The how is important, but the why is much more important. Um, What the psalmist is going to tell us is you will worship this way, When you know what I know, when you know these truths, you will sing based on your knowledge and your singing will conform to something because of what you know. Knowing the truth that he is going to explain to us brings about worship. And the more you know, the more you will worship. Just a side note here. There's a strange romantic idea That the more ignorant you are about who God is, the more you'll be able to praise him. Somehow, like, let's lead the mystery. We want mystery to be there. And so I just, I I want to be ignorant because there's so many benefits to just, to not knowing fully. And to having this awe and wonder. I personally have never understood that. That somehow, if we don't know anything about God, or if we just keep our knowledge at this level, we will love him more. I personally don't think that's biblical. I'm going to ask John Piper to help us with this. 
He says it this way. There's an odd notion that if we use our minds to grow in our knowledge of God, mystery will diminish. And with it, a sense of wonder and reverence. I call this notion odd for two reasons. One is that no matter how many millions of ages I use my mind to know more and more of God's majesty, his glories will never be in danger of being exhausted, ever. This is heaven. By the way, if you find heaven boring or the thought of heaven boring, maybe it's because you find this thought troubling. That somehow I just want to stay ignorant, and if I know God fully, then I'm totally going to not worship him, or I'm going to be, the, the, the mask is taken away, and I, I see the man behind the curtain, and it's all just, no, 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 that's not going to happen. That is not going to happen. His glories are never, ever, ever in danger of being exhausted. Piper continues, what is not yet known of God by finite creatures will always be limitless. You honor this truth more by shameless growth in the knowledge of God. And the second reason I find the notion odd that thinking about God, knowing more and more of God jeopardizes our worship of God is that without knowing him, we cannot worship in a way that honors him. And he says this, God is not honored when people get excited about how little they know of him. God's not honored when people get excited about how little they know. So our worship, our praise must be intelligent and it must be informed by God's word and By the way, this is so abundantly helpful because now we understand biblically that our worship of God does not depend on our circumstances. It doesn't depend on our feelings. It doesn't depend on our emotions. Yes, our worship should be emotional. We've already seen that. Shout joyfully. But the emotions aren't the primary reason why we sing. We sing because of what is true, not because of what we feel. So if you feel like not singing... You can still sing because you know there's truth that exceeds your feelings. You know that there's truth that's deeper, that's higher, that's weightier than the way you feel. And you can come before God with singing, even in the midst of trials or suffering. This makes the, this makes the difference. I don't feel like singing, but that's true. It's so liberating to our worship because our worship of God isn't rooted in our circumstances or our feelings. When the Bible says here that God made us and we are his people. That's true no matter what you're experiencing today. No matter what you feel today, that is true. God made you and you are his. That's true. And so I would encourage you, if you find yourself, even today in this service, if you find yourself struggling to praise God, struggling through the emotions and the circumstances of life, which we all have been through very trying things, These are words that you should crawl into, use as your refuge, and and hide there and know this is true so I can sing. These are truths about who God is that can make me, that can bring me to a place to raise my affections and to help me sing. So, reasons that the psalmist gives for us to sing. Reason number one is who God is. Reason number one is who God is. God is our creator. Verse three, know that the Lord himself is God. This is the fundamental reason that we worship. This is the fundamental reason that we come before God. He is our maker. He is the creator and we are his creation. It's no wonder why the enemy is attacking the creation um, with, with preaching the lie and the deception of evolution. It's no wonder. I think this is why the psalmist says, know that the Lord, he himself is God. He made us and not we ourselves. We didn't make ourselves. 
even though we live as if we made ourselves. We live as if we created ourselves. But when we stop and we understand this reality, God made you and you didn't make yourself, um, this makes us feel very small, makes him feel very big, and it makes us realize our dependence on him. It makes us realize our dependence on him. It'll help us understand the difference between him and us. We need to sleep. He doesn't sleep or slumber. We need Kleenex. I have, I have Kleenex here in the case of an emergency, which today more than ever is possible. God doesn't need a Kleenex. God never gets sick. God never has to take a sick day. God reigns as king over the entire universe. He is completely set apart from us. R.C. Sproul says it this way. The grand difference between a human being and a supreme being is precisely this. I love it when somebody says that. I mean, that's a big thing. What would you say is precisely the difference? I mean, there's a lot of differences between God and us. But R.C. Sproul says, guys, I got this one. Here is the precise difference. Okay, thanks, R.C. Help us out. Apart from God, I cannot exist. Apart from me, God does exist. God does not need me in order for him to be. I do need God in order for me to be. We are dependent on him. We are fragile. And this is how we differ from God. Whenever we start to admire our own achievements, whenever we start to get preoccupied with ourselves, we go back to this verse and say, oh, he made us. We're his creatures. It's good to feel small. It's good to come before him and just feel tiny and let him say, and I still love you. I still love you. We're fascinated by ourselves far too often, and the psalmist is saying, be fascinated by God. Know that the Lord himself is God alone. Himself alone. He alone is God. He made us. And he is good. Drop down to verse 5. The Lord is good. This is who he is. So he is creator and he is good. He is good in everything that he does. He is sovereign over everything, but he's good over everything. He's good. We praise him for who he is. And then number two, we praise him for what he's done. What has he done? It says, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. And then the end of verse 5, his loving kindness is everlasting and his faithfulness to all generations. What has he done? He's redeemed for himself a people. We are his people. You see, if, if the motivation just stopped at praise God because he made you, then we're, it's just a creature-creator distinction. That's all it is. It's just we are his creatures, he is our creator, and that's why we should praise him. But instead, the psalmist says, hang on, there's an intimate relationship that he has. He's not just looking at his creation as the creator and saying, I made you do what I told you to do. There's an intimacy here. We're not just creatures, we're people. We are his people. And we are the sheep of his pasture. He cares for us as a loving shepherd. We've been studying the book of John. We just finished John chapter 10. John 10, verses 14 through 15. I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. I know my own and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. How are we the people of God? We're the people of God because Jesus laid down his life for us to ransom us, to redeem for himself a people. This is all the grace of God. We're intimately involved with God because he is a loving God. Verse 5, his loving kindness is everlasting. It never ends. This is that word hesed in the Hebrew. Hesed love. When, 
My, my favorite definition is when the one from whom I have the right to expect nothing gives me everything. We come before God, we're his creatures, and we have completely re- rebelled against our creator. We have the right to expect nothing. We just have the right to expect punishment. And God, by his grace, says, I won't give you punishment. In fact, I will give you grace and mercy and love. I'll lavish you with kindness. And he's faithful to all generations. This isn't a one-time deal. This is an offer that's given to everyone for all ages. Now, if the psalmist can write those words, then we, with New Testament eyes, can read verse 5 with an even greater appreciation for the love of God. J.I. Packer helps us. You guys know J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. That's a book I think that every Christian needs to have on their shelf. That is such a helpful book. And J.I. Packer says it this way. God's love is an exercise of his goodness. The Bible means by God's goodness that he has cosmic generosity. And of this goodness, God's love is the supreme and most glorious manifestation. So God is good, and that is a cosmic manifestation of his goodness. And of his goodness, there's a specific aspect of his love. God's love is an exercise of his goodness towards sinners whose nature is corrupt in God's sight and who only merit condemnation and final banishment from his presence. It is staggering that God should love sinners, yet it is true. It's staggering that he should love us, but it's true. God's love is an exercise of his goodness toward individual sinners. It's not a vague, diffused goodwill toward everyone in general and no one in particular. Its nature is to particularize both its objects and its effects. And God's love to sinners was expressed by the gift of his son to be their savior. The measure of love is how much it gives. And the measure of the love of God is the gift of his only son. The New Testament writers constantly point to the cross of Christ as the crowning proof of the reality of and the boundlessness of God's love. God loves us. And he gave his son for us. So we have a call to worship. And we have a reason why we should worship. He has made us. We are his people. He is our loving shepherd. And his loving kindness endures forever. But as we conclude. I want us to look at. The most unlikely nature. Of the invitation that's been given to us. We've been invited to come. We've been invited to come into his courts and to sing. First, look at the most unlikely recipients. This is an invitation that's not given to angels who are holy in heaven, sinless. They had a choice. Do you want to go with uh, the devil? Do you want to go with Satan? Do you want to fight against me? They said no. A third said yes. The two-thirds that said no, this invitation isn't given to them. This invitation isn't given to creation. You remember in Family Bible Hour, we saw all of creation in Psalm 93 through 100 is singing praises to God. Rivers are clapping. Who knew rivers had hands? They do. They're clapping. Creation didn't disobey God. When God made light and he said, let there be light, 
light happened and light said, God, wherever you want to send me, I will go. When God made waves, God said, we're going to go this far and no further. And they said, tell us where you want us to go. We're going there. When God made birds, they, they went exactly where God wanted them to go. And then God made man and man said, no, we don't want to do what you're telling us to do. And yet this is an invitation that's given to us. Lawbreakers, rebels, it's given to us. And consider the most unlikely nature of the invitation that's given to us. This is an invitation given to us, the most unlikely of recipients. And it's also a most unlikely nature. There's a nature involved in this invitation that's most unlikely for us. We should all leave freshly amazed at the gracious invitation that's being given to come to enter into worship. And Derek Kidner says it this way. I think this is very helpful. The simplicity of this invitation in verse 4, to enter his gates with thanksgiving, enter his courts with praise. The simplicity of this statement, of this invitation, may conceal the wonder of it. The simplicity of this invitation, come, may conceal the wonder of it. Here's the wonder of this invitation. The courts that we are being invited to jump into, those courts are God's courts. They're not our courts. Enter his courts, not our courts. And the gates that we enter, enter as gates with thanksgiving, those gates are completely shut to the unclean. Revelation chapter 21, verse 27, nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Nothing unclean can come in through those gates. But not only are his outer courts opened to us, and not only have the gates been flung open for us to enter into, but the innermost court, the Holy of Holies, has been thrown open by a new and living way. Because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, Access has been made for us to enter through the gates with thanksgiving into the courts and into the Holy of Holies with praise because of Jesus Christ. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. We will end here. Hebrews chapter 10. This is the reason why we can enter his courts, why we can even stand in the midst of holiness. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies may be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Drop down to verse 19. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Let us enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. God has made a way for us 
to enter his courts. Not because of us meriting that, not because of us earning a right standing before him, but because of Jesus living a sinless life that you and I could never live, dying the death that we deserve, being punished on our behalf because God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we could be the righteousness of God in him. That's the reason why we can enter into the courts this morning. And if we have that reason, then we have great reason to be loud. It would be appropriate for us to be joyful, to be glad, and to be loud. I think it would be only fitting for us to end our service by praising the Lord, by entering into his courts, through his gates, onto his turf that he so graciously allowed us access to, and to sing with joy, to make a glad noise, to shout with gladness in our hearts to our amazing God and King. Father, we thank you so much for this psalm that impacts our understanding, that informs theologically how we are supposed to sing, how we are supposed to worship. We have reason to worship with loud singing, with shouts of joy. We have reason to come before you and to thank you for who you are and for what you've done. So God, we want to come through the gates that were once shut, that we could never open. We were the ones that were supposed to be banished from your presence, but you have graciously opened those gates to us today because of Jesus. And we can enter into the courts. We can place our feet on the Holy of Holies, a place where Moses and and Aaron standing on holy ground, they couldn't enter but one day a year. And now we can enter any moment that we uh, would desire to because of what Jesus has done, tearing that veil in two from top to bottom, giving us free access at any moment, to the Father. God, we have reason to be filled with joy. And so, God, I pray that we, having our minds infused and informed theologically by your word, would sing, would sing praise with gladness. May there be a discernible joy in our worship through song to you in this moment. We pray in your name. Amen.